Hello, everyone. Um, in the second uh, year of the podcast from Research to Reality, in our first series on the future of high-performance computing, I have a great honor and pleasure to host Paolo Faraboski, uh, HP uh, VP and fellow, uh, and also director of the AI Lab. Hello, Paolo. Hi, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here again for the second podcast. Well, at that time, you were on the director of AI Lab, so we'll bring a little bit different angle. Plus, the first time we didn't record the video. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. So you have a very lengthy title. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, can you explain what are your roles and responsibilities for each one of these uh, very important uh, titles? Yeah, well, uh, I'm still a technologist at the heart. I've been at HP for, I guess, 27 years at this point. And so that uh, fellow is, uh, you know, among the top uh, ranking in, in the technical career path. HP, um, as a predecessor, HP is still one of the few companies that still values a technical career path and has so-called, you know, dual ladder where, you know, on the technical side, you can really reach uh, levels of VP and senior VP with a fellow and senior fellow. And so I like to keep that title because again, at the, at, at the heart, at my heart, I'm still kind of a nerd. Uh, if you think about it. And then, you know, um, I now recently uh, became the director of uh, BI Research Lab, which was a, a sort of a new lab that we started uh, about a year and a half ago, roughly speaking. And, you know, we did not have AI research in labs and because of how important artificial intelligence machine learning has become uh, across the entire industry, we thought it was important to to do that, and uh, and that was a role that I stepped up to to cover for the company. It also is very interesting because it overlaps many of my interests in, in architecture, in software, uh, HPC accelerators, and so on. So it's, it's felt, it felt like it was a good uh, next challenge for me. Uh, but your path to both this title and to this technology area wasn't linear one. Uh, you had many circles, turnarounds. Can you explain your uh, professional trajectory? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I tend to work in 10-year chunks. Uh, I spent my first, uh, you know, I'm, I'm European like you are, and I, I, I did my education in, in Europe and Italy uh, with my PhD. And uh, uh, then I joined uh, Hewlett-Packard Labs in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And there I was working on actually... Uh, small things like uh, embedded VLIW processors. We ended up in printers and scanners. And, you know, from that, I kind of transitioned almost to the other extreme to high performance computing and exascale, which was my job before, uh, you know, doing the, uh, the eye research. And then the sort of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the eye part of it was uh, almost like a natural fit as a progression out of high performance computing. And uh, I also, you know, like many of us in the early 90s, I kind of dabbled in neural networks at the time, uh, which seemed like an interesting, when I was in academia, was an interesting research project. Uh, of course, at the time I concluded that those were useless, which, you know, so much for my prediction skills, but uh, now it's a time to clearly go back and I kind of brush off some of the dust that accumulated on that experience. Um, uh, let's focus on HPC and AI, and uh, this is the series uh, on the future of HPC, and I brought you uh, as a director of AI Lab uh, for a good reason, 
there appears to be convergence of these two areas of high performance computing and AI. So can you explain to us these trends? Yeah, of course. I mean, the convergence goes in, in both directions, actually. Initially, it started with uh, sort of, you know, the AI workloads, which were born primarily in the cloud uh, to, uh, you know, realize that they needed high performance computing performance. And that's where sort of the GPU started to come into the equation. And that's where some of the high performance networking also uh, became important for running uh, AI and machine learning workloads. Um, and then as sort of as the hardware became more available and kind of the GPU started including all the support to run, to run AI, uh, it turns out that also the, the science community started to understand the value of using some of these new algorithmic uh, techniques that were developed primarily, again, in, in for cloud type of workloads uh, for their own applications. And so now we're seeing a proliferation of ideas and techniques that kind of came from the AI space and being applied to high performance computing. So it's been kind of an interesting trajectory where you know, in the past, it was sort of, you know, the high performance computing was kind of dictating the GPUs to have high precision floating point, like 64 bit. And then it kind of flipped around completely, right? That now it's the high performance computing community that's trying to figure out a way to use 16 bits and 8 bit precision even to, to solve problems that previously were thought impossible to address with low precision arithmetic. So it's going to be interesting to see how that thing evolves. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned PASS when you and I were starting. Uh, at those times, there were a number of processors, I remember. There was Motorola, there was Sun, uh, there was HP, Digital, uh, many others. This reminds me of the plethora of accelerators that exist today. Do you, with your successful predicting skills, anticipate that there will be also convergence, uh, consolidation of these accelerators? Where do you see future? Yeah, of course. I mean, lots, lots of uh, you know technology, uh, you know, predictions uh, talk about this uh, Cambridge, Cambrian explosion of compute. Even you know, I gave a talk that you invited me um, in a conference a couple of years ago on that one. Now, uh, something that people tend to forget that after the Cambrian explosion, there is a pretty significant time of um, um, of extinction, right? Uh, that's when a large part of those species that kind of grew up in the Cambrian period kind of disappeared because the ecosystem wasn't ready to support them. And I think we're going to be seeing a similar uh, effect in the, in the world of AI acceleration. I mean, today there's probably, I don't know, 20, 30 companies that are trying to take a part of that space. And uh, clearly the ecosystem doesn't have enough food, I mean, enough uh, business to sustain all of them. I think some of the companies that I see are being more successful or promise to be more successful and are the ones that are going to be addressing uh, things like software, things like uh, big system complexity. In many cases, I see many of these processes concentrating just on the acceleration on performance, but we know that most of the challenges happen to be around um, the uh, you know, the software ecosystem and how you integrate these parts into a larger system. And that's where, you know, it's going to be the, the, the place where the winners are going to emerge over time. Uh, it's very interesting that you mentioned software. So uh, there are these traditional AI techniques such as uh, machine learning, deep learning, 
reinforcement learning, how do they uh, merge with uh, uh, traditional high performance computing uh, techniques that are based on MPI or, or multi-threading? Well, um, you know, some of these techniques are going to be, uh, you know, moving across the boundaries, right? In the sense that we've seen the high performance computing community embrace uh, the, um, the new uh, AI and machine learning frameworks like TensorFlow or PyTorch, because that's clearly where the, where the action is and where the major development is. And so whatever is going to be built as part of that is going to be inherited by the high performance computing community, which is already creating quite a bit of, of, of turmoil because clearly we're talking about different orchestrator that are like, you know, the Kubernetes and the containerization that is very different from the typical Slurm based batch schedulers in, in HPC. We're talking about different programming languages like Python that don't have the bindings to the networking. And all of these things is, 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 is changing and improving over time, but it is creating a little bit of a, of a shock. And uh, of course, it also depends on where the various accelerators are going. There is a component that is scale up in the sense that there's a lot of multi-threading inside GPUs and then even within a system. But then there's also a component about scale out in the sense that if you really wanna accelerate, for example, the training of a large model, you really have to go uh, you know, across multiple system and, and take advantage of system fabrics. So it's all gonna come together at some point. Uh, sticking with your prediction skills, um, how do these programming models merge? We know that high performance computing has uh, very um, strict barriers uh, because of that scaling. Uh, that um, programs running on these multiple nodes have to be synchronized. So where do you stick AI into it? Do you stick inside of that loop uh, that HPC applications have? Or do you do it on the loop, outside of the loop? What is your prediction? Well, I mean, if you think about an, an AI application that scales out like training, it is actually very similar to a high performance computing application because it is both synchronous parallel, parallel, right? In the sense that you've got, you know, multiple processes doing their own training and then they do a, a kind of a, a, a barrier where they, they do an all reduce to kind of exchange the new weights and communicate them, which is very similar to what you do in most high performance computing applications. Now, I think what becomes interesting in when is when some of these AI applications are actually becoming part of the of, of something like a high performance computing simulation where you're running, let's say, your you know, thermodynamic simulation with a adaptive mesh refinement where you're going with you know, increased precision in certain parts of your of your 3D space. And then to accelerate part of that, you want to kick in an inference process from AI. That means that those two processes now need to become a lot more integrated. They also need to start exchanging state, moving state from like your traditional, you know, MPI simulation into maybe a GPU accelerated cluster and getting it back. So that's sort of the new frontier of how those two worlds are gonna have to work together that is still to be defined. There's a lot of work in, in research and in um, academia out there, but it's still not yet defined. Uh, very interesting. If we flip the coin and now look from the AI perspective, um, AI, especially nowadays, is known to be running at the edge, be it in autonomous computing or video recognition at airports, et cetera. Uh, 
what does AI at edge mean in high performance computing? Is it the same? Is it different? How do they compare? Well, there's some elements of it that are very related in the sense that, you know, there's like two definition of edge, right? One is anything that's not a data center. And that means like it's a completely different administration domain. And the other one is sort of the, the edge meaning distributed devices with like power and, uh, and the space and, uh, and cost uh, high constraints, like what you can find in, you know, smart cities or homes or, or you know, sensors in a car. Now, in, in the high-performance computing world, we're primarily talking about the heavy edge, right? When we're talking about, you know, a national lab doing, um, you know, scientific discovery in area like, you know, material science and so on, the instrumentation that is at the edge is, is pretty heavy machinery. So there's very little uh, power and, uh, you know, energy constraints because, you know, if you are running a particle accelerator, you're not going to be worried about the fuel watts or tens of watts. Now, at the same time, it's an edge because, you know, the data flow and the volume of data is still incompatible to be kind of moved all the way to the supercomputer. So there's a lot of thought about how to combine an experiment that has a component in running in an instrumentation edge and a component running in the supercomputer and how do you apply AI closer to the edge to do data reduction in an intelligent way or to do things like, for example, um, you know, applying some of the inference algorithm to, to detect important events and only, you know, process those or do the control or those kind of things. So that's, again, probably the next frontier of a, a complex high-performance computing application, which we're going to start seeing in the post-exascale generation. Continuing with our underlying prediction theme, in the past, high-performance computing, especially the very high-end, uh, was run in the data centers, um, whereas a lot of AI was predominantly run in the cloud. As the two areas converge, where do you predict they will run? In the data centers, in the cloud, hybrid model? Where is our future? Well, I mean, we talked about my prediction skills, so whatever I say, you should put your money on the opposite. But I mean, clearly, uh, AI, it's born in the cloud today, right? I mean, when you're in the early stages of an AI deployment or, or, or an R&D project, most people would naturally go and pick up an instance in the cloud from your you know, usual suspects of large hyperscale providers because of the simplicity of use to actually get it started. You know, you get all the programming environment, you get all the other goodies around it. And that is a very natural place to, to kind of tinker in, into a, in a new model. When you need to start scaling it, or you need to actually embed it in a more complex process like the one I described in high-performance computing, that's when things are going to get moved back into on-prem for a couple of reasons. One is the economics of the cloud, but two is also because of the data gravity of all the stuff you already have on-prem, especially if you are in, in the ecosystem of a large supercomputing center. And that is not likely to go back to the cloud anytime soon, I think. So I still see kind of, you know, a flow of things starting in the cloud and then possibly migrating, you know, for larger, uh, you know, deployment in supercomputing centers. And, you know, beyond that, it's going to be really hard to see. Of course, uh, you know, there's a high performance computing in the cloud as well, which a lot of the players are starting to ramp up on. So, you know, Jerry's still out on how that's going to work in the future. Um, one of your other predictions related to AI that you made for IEEE Computer Society 2021 uh, predictions was 
uh, trustworthy AI. Uh, what does it mean uh, and uh, how is it relevant to high performance computing? I think it's relevant in general uh, of the evolution of, of some of the AI machine learning technology and in high performance computing particularly. So, I mean, so far, or at least in the early stages of AI, most of the design has been a design for performance, right? People build uh, and also they, they deploy accelerators. They try to squeeze every ounce of performance and try to make it scalable and so on. Now, what it turns out is that um, AI is a black box making decisions that you cannot explain and then you cannot verify and, and you cannot make robust is hitting a little bit of a wall across the entire industry. Examples are, for example, you know, bias or, uh, you know, again, explainability to be able to understand, um, you know, why a certain decision was made, especially if the decision wasn't the one you were expecting or whether your data, especially in supervised training, when you, when you use training data to create a model, whether the data you're running on is drifting away from the model you used to train, right? All of these things remind me a lot of sort of the, 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 the circuit world where people at some point figured out that, you know, you need to design for testability first before you do design for performance. Otherwise, you're going to get something that is not going to work. And I think the trustworthy AI uh, wave that's going through the industry is following a similar principle where now, um, you know, people are starting to think about putting in those um, you know, provisions to make sure that you have explainability, that you have robustness, that you can keep a human in the loop, that you have, you know, a fair and, you know, bias-free uh, type of environment that, it, that is becoming very important for all the application of AI that touch the real world. Um, one more thing I want to say in the world of HPC, there's another set of constraints that are, for example, the physical world constraints, like um, most of the AI algorithms uh, they produce solutions and they like to be unconstrained. If you're doing gradient descent, you don't really like to have a lot of barriers and boundaries. Now, of course, in, in, if you're using AI as a component of like a physical simulation, there are like laws of physics that you cannot violate. So you've got to figure out a way to tweak your algorithm so that they end up producing legal solution. And, and that is also a, a challenge that the world is, you know, AI research is trying to address. Um, AI is used quite a bit in the areas such as agriculture uh, and um, HP, our company, is acting as a force for good. Uh, what does this mean? Well, uh, you know, we say that the core belief is we want to advance the way people live and work. And, and this comes all the way from the top, from Antonio and Ari, our CEO who has been very active in, uh, in positioning HPE um, and uh, HPE's employee as participants of this technology for good, including signing uh, treaties recently, one that was pushed by President Macron of France. But if I look at it, um, this kind of feeling is spread in, across the entire company. An example that was obvious was in the recent um, uh, COVID crisis when um, as part of the, some of the AI uh, work, we put out a call for help to the entire developer community at HPE to come up with some um, ideas and approaches to help 
the, the COVID-19 emergencies. And there was really an overwhelming response. You know, even folks from my team created a whole new, you know, NLP system to help mine the, the, the scientific database of all publications to help, uh, you know, the scientists uh, understand uh, the progress of the, the, in, in the various fields of, of medical research. We had high-performance computing consortia. We had people, you know, working with academia to help, you know, accelerate the vaccine. So, so I mean, that's that's I think is you know the the force for good it has to come also from all the employees, and I'm seeing things that that point in that direction across the board at HPEs. And there are many other examples like food production. That's why I'm of course agriculture and listening to the world. Very interesting project that. Uh, our previous interviewee, Jenny Zdankas, was talking about, and many other examples. Uh, I, I like that you touched on the business perspective. And that same business is taking our headquarters uh, here from Silicon Valley to Houston. So how do you feel about that? Well, that's certainly a change because you know, HPE, as a descendant of Hewlett and Packard, was you know, an iconic company from, from Silicon Valley. I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably new here in Silicon Valley. I live in Palo Alto only for the last uh, six years. But from my perspective, uh, you know, this is clearly something that the, the, the current economic conditions and the pandemic and a lot of the shifts in the, in, in the business is, is accelerating. But, but from my perspective, I think there's a there's a innovative culture and there's an entrepreneurship culture in Silicon Valley that's going to be really hard to to replicate uh, elsewhere. I mean, it, a lot of places have tried. And and if I look back in history, Silicon Valley has survived a lot of crises. From you know, it's actually called Silicon Valley, and but if you think about it, a lot of it is like social networking valley, and then the gig economy valley, and you know. Lots of new ideas that came out of here. So I don't know what's going to come next. And some of the companies are, you know, moving their headquarters away. I don't think it takes away the kind of the fundamental, you know, core entrepreneurship and, and kind of uh, center of creation of ideas that's in that's in Silicon Valley. Now, I mean, of course, uh, there are also other reasons that are more related to, you know, politics and so on. I don't want to get into that, but there definitely there's room for improvement in areas like, you know, infrastructure, public transport, and so on and so forth, that, you know, the state of California is getting a wake-up call from a lot of these, um, uh, you know, companies moving out. You said you are only about six years here in Palo Alto. Um, and can you tell us about the picture behind you, your virtual background? What, what, where is that? Yeah, that's my hometown in Genoa, Italy. It's a, it's one a little village called Bocadasse, which is uh, where I grew up. And uh, I like it a lot. That's why I keep it as a virtual background. Very nice. Very nice. But you also lived in Barcelona, which potentially has similar um, landscape like your village and, and the whole surrounding. Can you tell us uh, and compare living in Italy, uh, in that village, or nearby in Barcelona, uh, then on the East Coast, and then finally on the West Coast? And whether your trajectory is now to Hawaii or further West or potentially going back? Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, the, you know, cultural diversity and getting exposed to different cultures helps a lot. It helps a lot to understand you know, different 
uh, work-life balance, different culture. I remember in Barcelona, you know, in the early days of, of HP, they had actually started the site not long um, uh, before I, I first visited. And, uh, you know, they, they had set up like breakfast at like 9.30 a.m. free for everybody so that they would convince employees to go there at least at 9.30 a.m. Like in the U.S., we're probably <laughs> already up an hour and a half before. But then, of course, people would stay on until like maybe 8 p.m., right? So, and, but, you know, there's different cultures, different ways in which people approach the work-life balance and how they become productive. I think that helps a lot in, in, in growing and understanding how to, to build teams. Also these days with this like remote working arrangement that we all have to go through and, and probably gonna stay, uh, it, it also helps to, uh, to have, and it's gonna cause teams to be a lot more geographically dispersed and that's going to, uh, you know, so some of these skills are important. So, you know, I really encourage a lot of folks uh, that I talk to or I mentor to try to get exposed as much as possible to different cultures because that helps. What about the difference between East Coast and West Coast? Because both you and I worked in Cambridge and now we're in Palo Alto. So is there any parallels, any differences? Well, I mean, winter is different for sure. <laughs> That's true. But, um, well, I have to say that, you know, the East Coast is a lot closer in terms of, uh, of way in which people think and live to, to Europe from my perspective. Um, it's, you know, older part of the U.S. Um, on the West Coast, there are, you know, lots of advantages. And, uh, you know, if I ask my kids, they probably like it a lot more here in terms of, you know, kind of relaxed way of living. Although, you know, there's a lot of pressure, but, you know, it all depends on how the families, uh, you know, interpret that. And uh, so, I mean, I think you, you have to find the, the good things in, in the different parts of the world that you live in. And there's always a good, a good thing. Um, so you mentioned diversity that you were exposed across all these regions and inclusion and diversity is extremely important topic for uh, HP, but the, this area of the world for the whole world for that matter. So how, how would you describe inclusion and diversity? What does it mean to you? I mean, diversity of thought is, is a fundamental process and that, that is necessary to come up with the right solution to whatever you're doing, right? So, I mean, you, you have to be able to tap into different backgrounds and different talent pools and different uh, ways in, in which people that come from different backgrounds, uh, you know, live and contribute to the technology or the business. An example, even in, in the world of AI, that, that's pretty obvious is that you know, without inclusion, it's going to be really hard to build products for everyone. And without, you know, a diverse team, it's going to be really hard to spot things that would then create a lot of problems. Uh, there's a lot of discussion out there these days about bias, which we talked about a few minutes ago in AI. And some of the decisions that come out of an AI process that are now being applied to, to uh, processes that actually impact people's life, like being rejected for a loan or something like that. And you can imagine that if the, uh, the training process was biased, we use biased data to start with, then the whole process is, is creating, uh, you know, unfair, uh, you know, biased decision towards certain classes of, of, of people. And, you know, it's gonna be hard to even spot those or even understand that you have a problem unless you have a diverse team to start with 
that will be, you know, will we'll, we'll understand that this is a problem and will try to fix it early on and try to actually understand that there is a, pro a process in, by which you can detect and try to mitigate certain types of bias as in the particular example. So I think it is fundamental and, uh, and you know, I'm really glad to see that the company I'm working for takes this very seriously. Excellent. Um, you are put under tremendous pressure. You have um, one of the leading technical uh, positions being uh, HP fellow, and then also VP and uh, AI lab director. Uh, how do you deal with that pressure? What, uh, how do you relax? How do you diffuse that pressure? Uh, interesting question. Um, I like sports and uh, especially water sports. I've been, uh, I was a swimmer early on. And then I became, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't a good swimmer. So then I became a water polo player. That was probably about, I guess, 40 years ago or close to that. And I've uh, been playing ever since. I mean, these days, uh, unfortunately, we cannot play contact sport because of uh, some of the um, uh, coronavirus restrictions. So I went back to swimming. I'm swimming almost you know, 10 kilometers a week if I can. Um, but I think it's a one way to relieve um, uh, you know, stress. Uh, that's important. I mean, when you play water polo, I mean, it's a lot easier to you know, discharge your bad energy by you know, beating someone up or getting beaten up. And then at the end of the, at the end of the game, you're still, you know, respect each other or friend and go out for a drink, uh, then to kind of, you know, use your frustration at work, right? I mean, at least that's one place, but I also think it helps, um, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of swimming. My, both my kids are uh, good swimmers, faster than me by, by far at this point, uh, faster than I ever was by far. And uh, because, you know, it helps you focus, it helps you manage your time. Uh, and then if you play water polo, it helps you do team sports because, uh, you know, it's all about teamwork. If, if, if you don't play as part of a team, then, then you know, the whole game is going to suffer, right? So you got to learn how to trust your teammates. And you also have to learn how to apply strategy. So all these things are important also in a business context. So I'm trying to teach my kids, but... You know, I think it's in general a good practice to uh, to kind of you know use uh, use uh, um, as you said you know mens sana in corpore sano the uh, the Latin uh, sentence, yeah. sentence that uh, basically says you know you gotta be of able body to keep your your mind straight. Right? Yeah. Hey, thank you very much, uh, Paolo. Um, as usually, I learn a lot uh, whenever I talk to you. Uh, we also drew some parallels between heavy edge and water polo as a heavy uh, contact sport, uh, but, but many other aspects. Thanks. Uh, hey, thank thanks a lot uh, for having me again. Hopefully, uh, you enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely.